We are kicking off our July 2022 series of A-Minder with this episode and are so glad you're tuning in. If you're interested in research that covers changes to neuronal function in Alzheimer's disease, we'll be covering the entire spectrum in this episode. We start with the big picture network changes and scale all the way down to molecular changes that may underlie pathology. So if that's what you're interested in, stay tuned. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Hello listeners, my name is Anusha and I'll be your host for this episode. I do want to give you an appreciation of our process before we get started on the abstracts that we have to cover today. We have a dedicated sorting team here at Aminder that collects all of the primary articles published on the PubMed database in a given month. They then divide them up into topics. Some of those topics get covered by hosts that are familiar with the subject matter. For all of the topics, regardless of whether they're covered in episodes or not, we have a bibliography team that generates a list of the relevant articles and publishes them on our website, aminder.com. This resource is especially helpful to find papers that you'll hear in these episodes very easily. This episode features summaries, which I created from my understanding of the abstracts, So do take the time to refer to the original papers before coming to conclusions about the quality and the validity of the findings. Finally, once the episodes are recorded, they get sent over to the editing team, where we polish the episodes into the versions that you hear now. Quite the process, huh? All of these positions that I've been talking about are thanks to the volunteer efforts of people who contribute to our team. There's so much to be gained in being knee-deep in the literature each month. So if you'd like to join our team, we're recruiting all sorts of positions. Send us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com if you're interested. If you're looking to support us with a lot less effort, one thing that you can do is to take a moment to leave a review on the streaming platforms you're listening to us on. These reviews help us get in the hands of many, many more listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already have left us a review. All right, let's get down to the episode. We've divided up 14 papers into three sections. We start with a special mention of an article published that made headlines in the field, and then continue on with four papers on larger-scale network dysfunction observed in Alzheimer's disease, or AD as I'll be referring to it from now on. Next, We have four more papers on synaptic dysfunction in AD, then we'll take a small break and come back with a final set of five papers on molecular changes that contribute to neuronal and ultimately cognitive dysfunction in AD. Before all of our primary articles, I do want to mention a review article that really shook up the AD research community and even beyond that. This was published in the journal Science and penned by the journalist who goes by the surname Pillar. He published an article called Blots on a Field, 
in which he points to evidence of widespread fabricated data pertaining to the amyloid beta or A-beta hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease development. It's definitely worth a read considering scores of researchers have based their research questions on these findings and millions of dollars have been invested into pursuing this hypothesis. Even in this episode, we'll consistently see A-beta deposition come up. It was a pretty costly lesson to learn, so hopefully it sticks. Replicate your findings in your own lab and then move forward with advancing the question of interest with your own contributions. And don't assume that all peer-reviewed journals are devoid of plagiarism, fraud, or simply even mistakes. At least, that's what I'm taking from this article. What do you think? Now we're moving on to our first official section of this episode, where we cover papers that converge on the topic of network dysfunction in Alzheimer's disease. This is paper number two in the bibliography. A multi-scale brain network model links Alzheimer's disease-mediated neuronal hyperactivity to large-scale oscillatory slowing. The first author is Van Nifterich, and the last author is De Haan, and this was published in the journal Alzheimer's Research. Authors are affiliated with the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam in the Netherlands. The authors of this paper have declared conflicts of interest, so do keep that in mind as we go through the summary. Researchers here are trying to bridge the gap between animal models and AD in humans using magnetoencephalography, or MEG, and computational modeling to characterize brain activity in early-stage Alzheimer's disease. Preclinical data suggests that hyperexcitability and reduced inhibition are a feature of AD pathology in animals. Here, 18 people with prodromal AD were compared to age-matched controls in parameters including oscillatory activity and other electrophysiological signatures. You can refer to the methods for further details on what features they were looking for. Ultimately, they observed network hyperexcitability in the AD subjects and suggest that this may be due to intrinsic hyperexcitability of pyramidal neurons or a reduction of inhibitory interneuron activity. This suggests that the imbalance between excitation and inhibition in early AD is observed in humans. Next is paper number three. Evoked cortical depolarizations before and after the amyloid plaque accumulation, voltage imaging study. The first author is Zhu, and the last author is Antic, and this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Authors are affiliated with the University of Connecticut School of Medicine in the United States of America. This next paper is something I'll definitely be reading for myself, as it uses a technique I may want to use one day. That is, using genetically encoded voltage indicators, or GVs, to measure membrane excitability in a whole population of neurons. Authors of this paper employed the technique to measure neocortical excitability over time in the familial AD mouse model called APP-PS1 mouse and this was compared to wall-type controls. They mentioned the parameters they used to measure voltage changes in the abstract, but I'll just summarize their findings. They found that between two and three months, these animals show cortical hyperexcitability compared to the wild-type counterparts. 
This would be a time point before observable plaque deposition of A-beta. When they looked at older animals, which were aged between 5 and 7 months, synaptically evoked voltage signals were significantly weaker in the AD mice. They suggest that this coincides with accumulation of plaques. As an aside, I study a familial model of Parkinson's disease and observe early hyperexcitability in my animals too. Maybe I should look at older animals to see if this is a pattern across different neurodegenerative diseases. My gut tells me yes. Moving on, we have paper number four. Loss of LAMP5 interneurons drives neuronal network dysfunction in Alzheimer's disease. The first author is Deng, and we have co-last authors Kay and Itner. This was published in Acta Neuropathologica. Authors are affiliated with the Macquarie University, Western Sydney University, and Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research, which are all located in Australia, and University of Toronto and the University Health Network, which are located in Canada. In this next paper, authors employ a genomics tool called Collaborative Cross, which is a platform for mouse genetic information. Using this tool, they identified modifier genes that may underlie neuronal hyperexcitability. They settled on one candidate, LAMP5, as a novel regulator of hyperexcitation. This seems to be lost both at synapses and in cell bodies of interneurons in degenerated neurons across different AD mouse models. Knocking down LAMP5, phenocopied synaptic deficits and network hypersynchronicity in both A-beta and tau-based AD models. Therefore, their findings suggest that LAMP5-containing interneurons are key players in protecting from network hyperexcitability in A-beta and tau-based AD models. The last paper of this section is paper number 5. Early loss of locus ceruleus innervation promotes cognitive and neuropathological changes before amyloid plaque deposition in a transgenic rat model of Alzheimer's disease. The first author is Flores Aguilar, and the last author is Coelho, and this was published in the journal Neuropathology and Applied Neurobiology. The authors are affiliated with McGill University in Canada. University of California at Irvine in the States, and University of Oxford in the UK. Now we move from the cortex to a midbrain nucleus of noradrenergic neurons called the locus ceruleus. This region has previously been shown to be one of the first parts of the brain to degenerate in AD, and that increasing amyloid pathology seems to accelerate the dysfunction and degeneration of this region. Here, authors lesioned the locus ceruleus in transgenic APP rats before A-beta plaque deposition occurred. They compared these animals to age-matched lesioned animals, as well as non-lesioned transgenic animals. Destroying the locus ceruleus reduced noradrenergic innervation in the brain and exacerbated the cognitive dysfunction observed in transgenic animals. This was correlated with reduced cholinergic tone in the hippocampus and reduced neurotrophin expression after lesioning. They also showed increased recruitment of microglia and astrocytes near the hippocampus, 
indicating increased neuroinflammation. In conclusion, destroying the locus ceruleus early on aggravates pathological processes that underlie amyloid-induced AD. With that, let's focus in on synaptic dysfunction in AD more closely with the next set of papers. Paper number six is called Detect Syn, a rapid, unbiased fluorescent method to detect changes in synapse density. This was published by first author Heaney and the last author, Rob Graham. This paper is found in the Journal of Visualized Experiments. The authors are affiliated with the Wake Forest School of Medicine in America. Now we have a methods paper proposing a new technique that overcomes limitations in immunofluorescent and electron microscopy techniques as it pertains to identifying synaptic number and synaptic plasticity. This method is called Detectsyn and uses a proximity ligation assay to quickly assess the number and proportion of pre- and postsynaptic proteins that are physically near each other. This serves as a proxy for synapse number, and they mention that it works both in vitro and in fixed tissue slices. They also provide a method to analyze the data. Perhaps this method is worth considering if you're feeling limited by available techniques to measure synapse number. Now we'll move back into papers that specifically focus on Alzheimer's disease. Paper number seven is entitled, Terminal Complement Pathway Activation Drives Synaptic Loss in Alzheimer's Disease Models. We have co-first authors Carpanini and Torvel, and last author Morgan. This was published in Acta Neuropathologica Communications, and the authors are affiliated with Cardiff University in the UK and University Graduate School of Medical Sciences, as well as the Ricken Center for Brain Sciences, which are both located in Japan. Here we look at how neuroinflammation could drive synaptic damage. The complement pathway, which triggers phagocytosis, is actually used in the process of synaptic pruning. Authors look into the hypothesis that it's also involved in neurodegeneration and synapse loss in AD by elucidating the mechanism of complement action on synapse loss. They used wild-type and APP-NLGF-AD mice at four different time points that span between 3 and 12 months of age. They found that players in the complement cascade were elevated in AD mice, including C1Q, C3 fragments, and the membrane attack complex. And these observations increased with age and severity of disease. Administering an antibody against the C7 protein altered synaptic loss, although they don't specify in the abstract in which direction things changed. Knockout of another component, C6, significantly reduced loss of synapses in the triple transgenic AD mouse model. Therefore, their findings implicate both activation and terminal pathways of the complement cascade in synaptic loss in AD. They also suggest that targeting the membrane attack complex can prevent damage to synapses, and that this is the case in another condition called myasthenia gravis. With that, we come to paper number 8, upregulated calcium release from the endoplasmic reticulum 
leads to impaired presynaptic function in familial Alzheimer's disease. The first author is Adioyi, the last author is Ula, and this was published in the journal Cells. Authors are affiliated with University of South Florida and University of California at Irvine in the United States. With this paper and the next one, we look at calcium signaling. Authors here are trying to bridge the gap between two hypotheses. One, that stores of calcium in the endoplasmic reticulum, or ER, located at synapses can modulate synaptic transmission, and two, increased calcium release from the ER and reduced calcium buffering are pathological features of familial AD. They used computer modeling to predict the effects of altered calcium levels at hippocampal synapses. They report that their model predicts increased probability of neurotransmitter release, increased activity-dependent short-term plasticity, and neuronal hyperactivity. They also predict that prolonged stimulation of around 450 milliseconds is enough to suppress neurotransmitter release and desynchronize release with the stimulus. They suggest that these observations point to the mechanism by which alterations in calcium homeostasis could disturb synaptic activity in familial AD. Next is paper number 9, Copper Ions, Prion Protein, and A-beta modulate calcium levels in central nervous system myelin in an NMDA receptor-dependent manner. The first author is Suitsui, and we have co-last authors Zamponi and Stice. This was published in the journal Molecular Brain. Authors are affiliated with the University of Calgary. This paper explores an aspect of calcium imaging that I've actually never thought of before. Apparently, myelin in the CNS can hold on to calcium and has the potential to induce neuronal injury through NMDA receptors. In ex vivo preparations of mouse optic nerves, they induced calcium changes in the myelin with copper ion exposure. This was an NMDA receptor-dependent process. Chelating copper in the perfusate significantly increased calcium levels in the myelin, as did axomyelinic injury. There are a few more findings pertaining to cellular prion protein and A-beta peptide regulation of myelinic NMDA receptor activity, but I'll leave those up to you to look into. In summary, their findings suggest that NMDA receptors in the myelin, just like in neurons, can induce excitotoxicity, and that this process can be influenced by copper and A-beta peptide levels. These are all important in the context of frequent observations of white matter injury in AD. And the last paper before our break is paper number 10, A-beta-induced presynaptic release of UBC9 through extracellular vesicles involves SNAP23. The first author is Long, and the last author is Lai, and this was published in the journal Neuroscience Letters. The authors are affiliated with Army Medical University and the third affiliated hospital of Chongqing Medical University in China. Up next, we tease apart how a post-translational modification called sumoylation could impact AD pathophysiology. Authors previously reported that ubiquitin-conjugating enzyme 9, 
which I'll refer to henceforth as UBC9, is highly dynamic in neurons. Here they furthered their understanding of synaptic distribution of UBC9 in a model of AD. They found that A-beta peptide significantly reduced presynaptic and conversely increased postsynaptic expression of UBC9. Curiously, it did not seem to affect the expression of UBC9 in synaptosomes. They suggest that instead UBC9 is transmitted across synapses using extracellular vesicles, and that A-beta actually increases this trafficking. Altering the release of extracellular vesicles blocks the A-beta-induced release of UBC9. Finally, the synaptic release of UBC9 was at least partially dependent on SNAP23 proteins. Altogether, a regulator of sumoylation, UBC9, seems to shuttle across synapses through extracellular vesicles, and this process is increased with A-beta peptide exposure. Alright, let's take a short break before heading over to our final section of this episode. I'm Lara from the Bibliography team here at Aminder. Did you know the episode you're listening to has a numbered bibliography that you can find in our show notes or directly on our website? And all of our episodes come with their own bibliographies so that you can easily find and look into the papers that interest you. If you're also interested in keeping up to date with scientific publications in Alzheimer's research and working in collaboration with other teammates, we would love it if you consider joining us. Send your CV and an indication of what you're interested in doing with us to aminderpodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. Welcome back. We have four more papers for you that all report on molecular changes that have an impact on memory as well as synaptic function in AD. First up is paper number 11 of the episode. Molecular Landscapes of Human Hippocampal Immature Neurons Across Lifespan We have co-first authors Zhu, Su, and Li, and last author Song. This was published in Nature. Authors are affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, Johns Hopkins University in the USA, and Nantong University in China. Immature dentate granule cells of the hippocampus play a role in plasticity of the hippocampus and are found to be dysregulated in many neurological disorders. Here, authors identified immature dentate granule cells and quantified their population in the hippocampus across age and in AD. They used single-nucleus sequencing alongside machine learning-based analysis. They found that there are transcriptional changes observed in humans across age that are not found in mice. 
They also report that the number of immature dentate granule cells was reduced in AD. Finally, the adult hippocampus has the capacity to regenerate as demonstrated by combining neural progenitors with cultured surgical specimens. Taken together, this study characterizes the molecular properties of hippocampal immature dentate granule cells through age and NAD and identifies the potential of these cells to generate new hippocampal neurons in vitro. Paper number 12 is titled Neuropathology and Cholinesterase Expression in the Brains of Octogenarians and Older. The first author is Maxwell, the last author is Darvish. We only have one middle author who goes by the surname Cash. This was published in the journal Chemical Biological Interactions, and authors are affiliated with Dalhousie University and Mount St. Vincent University in Canada. With this next paper, we also have authors who report conflicts of interest. Investigators wanted to figure out why certain people who are 80 years and older seem to be protected from cognitive decline. They hypothesized that cholinergic tone in brain areas that are important for cognition play a role. They compared tissue samples from age and sex-matched, cognitively older adults to those who had Alzheimer's disease. They found that A-beta plaques and tau neuropathology were not different between the two cohorts. However, butyral cholinesterase positive plaques were higher in number in AD individuals. This was also the case for acetylcholinesterase positive plaques, although to a lesser extent. If you're unfamiliar with either of those enzymes, they cleave acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter that contributes to cognition and is found to be reduced in levels in AD. They report that in brain regions such as the rostral prefrontal cortex and hippocampus, cholinergic neurons were reduced in number in AD brains. Altogether, they suggest that cholinesterase is implicated in the neuropathology of AD. Moving on to our penultimate paper, paper number 13, Confirmational and Functional Changes of the Native Neuropeptide Somatostatin Occurs in the Presence of Copper and Amyloid Beta. The first author is Han, and the last author is Lim, and this was published in the journal Nature Chemistry. Authors are affiliated with Korean Advanced Institute of Science and Technology and Peking University in China. Interneurons have come up several times already in this episode and are the home of our next molecule of interest, which is somatostatin. This is a neuropeptide expressed in a subset of interneurons, and authors report that somatostatin undergoes conformational and functional changes in AD. They found that this occurred alongside the presence of copper ions, A-beta, and the combination of the two. In these conditions, somatostatin preferred to self-assemble rather than bind to its receptor. However, also in this condition, somatostatin was capable of modifying A-beta aggregation and preventing cytotoxicity. Therefore, loss of normal function of somatostatin and gain of modulatory properties seem to be features of AD-related pathology. And our final paper is paper number 14. FAM69C, a kinase critical for synaptic function and memory, is defective in neurodegenerative dementia. 
The first author is Mei, and the last author is Yin, and this was published in the journal Cell Reports. The authors are affiliated with Peking University in China. In this paper, authors are looking at yet another possible mechanism contributing to memory loss. This time, the molecule of interest is FAM69C, which is a kinase that has already been implicated in dementia. Researchers generated FAM69C knockout mice to better understand its mechanism of action. These mice were characterized using single-cell sequencing, electrophysiology, morphology, and behavior. They report transcriptional changes as a result of knockdown that all converge on synaptic dysfunction. Moreover, their experiments show that these mice have defects in synaptic plasticity, spine density, cell viability, and memory performance. They further identify substrates of FAM69C that are involved in synaptic function and report that FAM69C levels are reduced in post-mortem brain tissue from individuals with AD. Therefore, FAM69C seems to be a positive regulator of memory function and could be further targeted as a therapeutic avenue for dementia. That's it for this episode. I have just a few more things to share before wrapping it up. We have made changes to our schedule with this series, so we'll be releasing a new episode twice a week on Mondays and Wednesdays. There's plenty more topics to cover, though, including another one of my episodes later on in the month where we target some aspects of what I brought up today, but instead as therapeutic strategies for AD treatment. If you'd like to stay connected with us, we're on most social media platforms. Now on to the thank yous. Thank you to Judy for reviewing my script and to Ellen Kosh for reviewing my final edit. Thank you to Lara for the bibliography. Thank you so much to our listeners who are new to this episode and to those of you who have been with me for several months now. Finally, I'd like to thank the founders of Aminder who decided to use my song for the background music you hear. This is called Journey of a Neurotransmitter, and you can find it on SoundCloud under my name, Anusha Kamesh, or on YouTube under AK Music. To wrap up, I just want to remind everyone that the goal of Aminder is to serve as a useful and accessible tool for our listeners. I hope you found that to be the case with this episode. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye.